Historically, there has been much discussion about whether the existence of God may be proven. Some think it is possible, while others remain doubtful. One thing is for certain, though. There remain many arguments on either side of the debate. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We continue in an expositional study in the life of Elijah. In today's passage, we'll learn how God distinguishes Himself from false gods and how He proves Himself to be the one and only true God. Well, Phil, in today's message, we learn that Israel was caught between two loves: the love of God and the love of Baal. How did Israel choose between the two? Well, Mark, this is one of the great, famous passages from the Old Testament: the conflict between the God of Israel and the prophets of Baal. And Elijah had, I think, really here you see it—a twofold strategy. First, he gives Baal an opportunity to answer the prayers of his prophets, and then when it's clear that Baal can do absolutely nothing, then he goes on to prove. That God really is the God of power, the God who answers prayer, and I think there's something for us to learn from that. We need to do both of these things. We need to critique the worldview of people who don't believe in God and really show the futility of it. But that at the same time, we need to give a testimony to the saving work of God in Jesus Christ. What does this passage show as the fundamental difference between Baal and the God of Israel? Well, Mark, I think the key to this passage is that there's only one God who can answer prayer. And it's really a contest between two prayer meetings. The prophets of Baal are crying out to Baal, hoping that he'll answer their prayers, and he doesn't answer their prayers at all. But when Elijah prays, you will see fire come down from heaven, and that's because the one and only true God, who has made Himself known to us in Jesus Christ, is the only God who hears. And who answers our prayers, and whatever our needs are today, whatever difficult circumstances we're in, He's the God we should turn to in our time of need. Thanks, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to First Kings chapter eighteen, verse sixteen, and listen to God's word for us today. This morning we are going up the mountain. This morning we are going up the mountain with Elijah to meet. Almighty God, I have been waiting this entire summer to go up the mountain. Waiting this entire summer to come to First Kings 18, where Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal with a message that there is no god but God. And it seems, as I look back over the summer, as if I was waiting in the plains of Jezreel in June, and then. Climbing up the foothills of Mount Carmel in July, now coming to go up the mountain to see the godness of God revealed in the fire on the mountain. We are not going up the mountain alone. Elijah will be there. King Ahab will be there with all his lackeys. Four hundred fifty prophets of Baal will be there, plus four hundred prophets of Asherah. If they can drag themselves away from the feasting at Jezebel's table, all the people of Israel will be there. They will all be there, high up on Mount Carmel, looking out over the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River and Mount Hermon, with all of the northern plains of Israel spread out like a tablecloth before them. And as we imagine 
that great spectacle on the mountain, as we imagine all of those prophets and all of the livestock and all of the people and all of the altars and all of the shouting and all of the dancing and all of the body piercing up on the mountain, it would be easy for us to miss the silence. The silence. There were two great silences on Mount Carmel. The first silence comes at the end of verse 21. It is the silence of doubt. It is the silence, the embarrassed silence, of a people who do not know which God they want to serve. Elijah has thrown down the gauntlet. He has given his challenge to Ahab. And you may remember how King Ahab went out to meet Elijah and how he accused him of being a troublemaker, of offending Baal so that the rain would not fall. But Elijah knew who the real troublemaker was, and so he turned Ahab's words against him. Verse 18, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. And so Elijah proposes one of the great debates, one of the great showdowns, one of the great heavyweight bouts of all time, Baal against the Lord God of Israel, winner take all. The stakes are high because the religious destiny of the whole people of God hangs in the balance. In this corner, Baal, the storm god of the Canaanites, and with him all of his backers, 22 score and 10 prophets. And over in this corner, Almighty God, the Lord God of heaven and earth with his only prophet, Elijah. If you have ever attended elementary school, you know that a good fight always draws a crowd. So when Ahab sent his promoters throughout his kingdom, all Israel gathered on the mountain. And when they had all taken their places, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Silence. The people said nothing, the scripture says. The silence was embarrassing. It was one of those awkward pauses when someone has said something so offensive and so shocking that no one else knows what to say next. That silence spoke volumes. It meant that the people of Israel did not know where they had placed their ultimate allegiance. It meant that they did not know which God they really wanted to serve, which God they really trusted. On the one hand, their affection for Baal was so strong that they could not stand up and pledge allegiance to God. But on the other hand, they had been raised in the traditions of the Torah and they could not quite bring themselves to deny the existence of the Lord God of Israel. The people of Israel wanted to hedge their bets. They wanted to have their Baal and their Yahweh too. I suppose that their basic problem was that they were firm adherents to the Monroe Doctrine. We were introduced to the Monroe Doctrine back when we were studying chapter 17 of 1 Kings. I pointed out then that the movie star Marilyn Monroe was once asked if she believed in God, and she said, 
Oh, I believe in everything a little bit. I call that the Monroe Doctrine, the doctrine that there are many roads to one God, the doctrine that you can believe whatever you like, even if some of the things that you believe contradict other things that you believe. According to the Monroe Doctrine, if one God is good, then two gods is better, and three gods are better still. According to the Monroe Doctrine, you can never believe in too many religions or put your trust in too many different gods. Something like the Monroe Doctrine was the fundamental religious idea of Elijah's day. The people of Israel like to believe in everything a little bit. They like to believe in the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a little bit. They like to believe in Baal a little bit. They like to believe in Asherah a little bit. And so when Elijah confronted them on the mountain and forced them to declare their ultimate allegiance, silence. They had nothing to say for themselves. That is why Elijah accuses the people of Israel of wavering between two opinions. The word he uses is the word you would use for someone who is lame. They are limping along. They are tottering from side to side, hobbling through life. It is like they have a racing sandal on one foot and an army boot on the other. They have one foot walking down the path of obedience to the living God, and they have one foot down in the ditch of bondage to Baal. And Elijah just wants to know one thing. How long will they waver between these two opinions? I learned about the futility of wavering between two opinions early in my baseball career. I was taking batting practice in my first spring of Little League, and I wasn't sure I really wanted to be up there. The big high school kid who threw batting practice for our team was throwing sidearm, and he was throwing inside, and he was throwing hard. It was scary. So I did what they call stepping in the bucket. Instead of keeping both of my feet in the batter's box, I started stepping towards foul territory, way out beyond third base. And when you step in the bucket like that, you aren't anywhere near home plate when the ball crosses the plate, and so you can't hit the ball. I was wavering between two opinions. I had one foot in the batter's box and one foot out in foul territory. But if you want to hit a baseball, you have to be single-minded. You have to stay in the batter's box and step right towards the pitcher's mound and drive the ball. The people of Israel had one foot in the bucket. Spiritually speaking, they were stepping out into foul territory. They were wavering between these two opinions. They had divided hearts. They wanted to worship the Lord God of Israel and still enjoy a little casual Baal worship on the side. We, too, live in a culture that wavers between two opinions, a culture under the spell of the Monroe Doctrine, a culture that believes everything a little bit. I am told that a monument to the Monroe Doctrine has been built on the campus of Vanderbilt University. The architecture of the new chapel on that campus is devoid of any explicitly religious symbolism. It is just an empty shell of a building. But the chapel does have a cupboard for every religion. 
So if you want to have a Jewish service there, you can get a Star of David and a menorah out of the Jewish cupboard. If you want to have a Christian service, you can get a cross and some Bibles out of the Christian cupboard. If you want to have a Muslim service, you can get some prayer rugs out of the Muslim cupboard, and so on and so forth. The Vanderbilt Chapel was built for a culture that does not know what it believes, for a culture that wants to believe in everything a little bit. Elijah demanded that the people of Israel make up their minds. And in the name of Christ, I make the same demand of you. It is the same demand that Moses made when he came down from the mountain and saw the people of God worshiping a golden calf and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. It is the same demand that Joshua made after the death of Moses when he said, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. It is the same demand that comes to every man and every woman and every child in every generation. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. You cannot straddle the fence. You cannot take a wait-and-see attitude about following God. The God of Elijah is an exclusive God. He allows no rivals. He will not share his glory with any other God, and he will not allow you to share your obedience with any other God. What it means to believe in God is to follow him with your whole life, and you cannot do that if you are still sitting on the fence still trying to decide whether to follow God or not. If you are still sitting on the fence, you are not following God and you are not saved. If you are not with God, you are against him, Jesus said. The Bible teaches that you are separated from God by your sin and that the only way you can be delivered from eternal judgment is to trust in Jesus Christ The only way to be saved from your sins is to believe that the death of Christ on the cross and the resurrection of Christ from the grave have delivered you from your sins. Now, what about those of you who are Christians or those of you who say that you are Christians, as I do? How long will you waver between two opinions? With God, it is all or nothing He wants your whole heart and your whole mind and your whole soul and your whole strength. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. The Puritans used to put it this way, you cannot serve God by halves. So I ask you this morning, have you given your whole self over to God or are you still dragging around the army boot of love for this world? If the Lord is God, then you must follow him with both feet. And here is one way to test whether or not you are wavering between two opinions. One difference between the waverer and the believer is that the believer is not silent. When the waverer is asked about spiritual things, he or she is not quite sure what to say, like the Israelites at Carmel. But when the believer is asked about spiritual things, he or she is able to give a bold testimony of faith in Christ. Not long ago, John Mortimer, who is a barrister and a man about town in London, conducted a series of candid interviews with prominent leaders in the Anglican Church. One of the men Mortimer interviewed was Robert Runcie, 
who was then the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Anglican Church. Mortimer asked Runcie the same simple question that Elijah asked Israel. Do you believe in God? There was an awkward silence, the silence of doubt. Well, Runcie replied, sort of, in a manner of speaking, depending upon what you mean by God. He was a waverer. He was tottering between two opinions, and he was not ready with a strong testimony. If Elijah could have gotten hold of that archbishop, he would have said to him what he is saying to us, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. That is the first silence, the silence of doubt on the mountain. And we will get to the second silence in a minute, but let's take a moment to observe Elijah's strategy. What is Elijah's method for evangelism? How does he do apologetics? How does he defend his faith in the living God? God has not called us to take America up to the top of Mount Carmel and offer sacrifices. But there is something to be learned from Elijah's two-part strategy. First, disproof, and then proof. First, the disproof of the false god, and then the proof of the true god. The refutation of Baal before the demonstration of the God of Israel. Notice the sportsmanship of Elijah as he begins that strategy. God's prophet gives every advantage to his opponents. Elijah is taking on all comers, and he is badly outnumbered. Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets, but Baal has 450 prophets. I suppose the bookmakers on Mount Carmel were getting 450 to 1 against Elijah. But even so, Elijah gives to the prophets of Baal the advantage, what you might call the home bull advantage. Let them choose one for themselves, he says in verse 23. I will prepare the other bull. That is very sporting of Elijah. Just in case one bull is preferable to the other for sacrificing, he lets his opponents choose first. And then Elijah lets them offer their bull first as well. Verse 25, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. And remember, this was a sudden death competition. Elijah said, the God who answers by fire, he is God. So if Baal had been able to answer with fire first, Elijah never would have had the chance to try his bull. He would have been a dead man first. And furthermore, this entire contest played to Baal's strengths, if he had any. Baal was the god of the sun, and so warmth and heat were his areas of special expertise. Baal was the god of storm, so fire was right up his alley. Surely he could manage at least one lightning bolt, at least one spark to ignite his bull. We see in all of Elijah's actions his absolute confidence in God. His sportsmanship gives us a good model of confident apologetics. 
We Christians are very defensive these days. We have our own schools and our own magazines and our own TV programs and our own books, and we hunker down in our own little communities because we feel threatened by a culture that is hostile to biblical faith. On those occasions when we do go out into the world, we keep it pretty quiet. But that is not what Elijah did. Elijah went up on the mountain and he confronted his culture. He was not afraid of the number of those who opposed him. He was not afraid of the strength of their arguments. Elijah went out in broad daylight and let his opponents make the strongest possible case for their religious beliefs. He was not afraid to do that because he knew that they would fail. He knew that Baal was nothing and that even if Baal had 450 prophets, 450 times zero is still zero. From the very beginning, Elijah knew that it was no contest, that any attempt to prove Baal would actually end up destroying Baal's credibility. That is just what happened. Once the prophets of Baal have tried to make their case, see how scathing Elijah is in his sarcasm. This is his disproof of Baal, his refutation of Baal. In his commentary on Kings, James A. Montgomery states that Elijah's satire in a nutshell is the raciest comment ever made on pagan mythology. Shout louder, Elijah said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. Perhaps Baal is thinking deep thoughts. Perhaps he is busy, as in, Mr. Baal can't come to the phone right now. Actually, that word for busy is a euphemism, so to put it more graphically and more literally, perhaps Baal has gone to use the outhouse. Perhaps he is taking a siesta. Perhaps he has taken a road trip. Perhaps he is looking after his investments. Perhaps he is down at the vet watching a Phillies game, or perhaps he has gone to get his oil changed or to spend a weekend in the Poconos. This is Elijah's style of refutation, part of his disproof of Baal. He is cutting Baal down to size, diminishing his stature, reducing him to human terms. He is imagining Baal engaging in the activities of mere human beings with all of their physical limitations. Elijah gives him no respect. He refuses to grant that Baal is really a god at all. It is a little bit like what happens at the end of The Wizard of Oz. When Dorothy and her friends get to the Emerald City, they hear the voice of the great and terrible Oz, and they are afraid of him. But then Dorothy's little dog, Toto, pulls back the curtain, and all they see is a withered old man with a megaphone. He is exposed as a fraud and a huckster. When Elijah pulled back the curtain on Baal, he exposed him as just the same kind of fraud and huckster. Elijah's mockery may not seem very sportsmanlike. He is taunting, actually. But it was right for Elijah to mock Baal. Elijah's sarcasm was a holy sarcasm. His sole motivation was to demonstrate the glory of God and the glory of God alone. 
And in order to do that, he had to show that God has no rivals. He had to disprove Baal utterly and completely before he could go on to prove God. He had to show that no other God can even stand in the ring with the living God. There is no God but God, and compared to him, any other God is a total joke. Consider the absolute contrast between Baal and the God of Elijah. In comparison to that busy, sleepy Baal, the majesty of the Lord God Almighty shines forth with full force and beauty from this passage. The Lord God Almighty is always living and active. He is not lost in his thoughts because he knows all things instantly and completely. He does not have bodily functions. He is spirit and does not have a body. God does not take a vacation. He sustains all things at all times by his power. The God of Elijah is never sleepy. He never takes a nap. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And if you are wavering between two opinions, waver no longer. The Lord, he is God and there is no other. Only the Lord God is never absent, never distracted, never asleep. But do you know what the best thing about the Lord God is? There is one thing that this passage especially emphasizes about the living God. It is the most telling difference between the one true God and all false gods. Do you know what it is? Let me give you a hint. We began our studies in Elijah in James chapter 5, verses 16 to 18 where James says this, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. As James examined the ministry of Elijah, as we have been doing, one thing leapt out at him, The distinguishing characteristic, the telltale mark of Elijah's ministry was prayer. Now, with that in mind, does 1 Kings 18 have anything to say about prayer? Yes, it does. There are many wonderful things throughout this whole chapter, but here is the key to all of them. Verse 24, you call on the name of your God, And I will call on the name of my God, the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. The showdown on Mount Carmel is all about which God can answer prayer. Answered prayer is the proof of deity. Now, how about Baal? Can he answer prayer? Give me a break. Here is the second great silence on the mountain, the silence of Baal, the silence of a God who cannot answer prayer and therefore is a God who is no God. You get a moment of silence already at the end of verse 26. The prophets of Baal were making all kinds of noise, 
But there was no response. No one answered. The prophets of Baal did not like that silence. They knew what it meant. They knew that it meant that their prayers were not being answered. And so they erupted into a frenzy of dancing and shouting. But as we come to verse 29, after six hours of this frenzied worship, darkness draws near and a hush falls over Carmel. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Baal, you see, does not pick up the phone. Three times the scripture says, Baal does not respond, he does not answer, he does not even pay attention. And that is because Baal is nothing. He is a triple zero over against the holy, holy, holy God of Elijah. Baal is nothing, nothing, nothing. This dispute at Carmel was a mismatch from the very beginning. The Lord God, the Lord God who answers prayer is an infinity weight. But Baal is lighter than the lightest lightweight. He is nothing at all. And that great silence on the mountain confirmed the absolute futility of Baal worship once and for all. Then was confirmed what the scripture says in Psalm 135, the idols of the nation are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, They have ears, but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Baal is the silent God who cannot speak or answer. And neither can any other false god. You can take all of the false gods of this world, all of the idols, all of the religious imposters that you can find, but none of them can answer prayer. You might worship success, climbing the corporate ladder. You might receive achievement awards and promotions and bonuses, but there is one thing that your career cannot do. It cannot answer prayer. You might worship pleasure, pampering yourself with rich foods and the latest music. You might live as much of a life of luxury as you can afford to do, but there is one thing that food and concerts and travel cannot do. They cannot answer prayer. You might worship the state, putting your confidence in political solutions. I realize that you are tired of politics, but just wait a couple of months and you will be putting your hopes in one candidate or another again. And if you make your government your idol, you may receive some hope. You may even receive a welfare check, but there is at least one thing that government cannot do. It cannot answer prayer. You might worship personal beauty, putting your confidence in outward appearances. You might receive some attention from those that you seek to attract. But there is one thing that cosmetics and accessories cannot do. They cannot answer prayer. You might worship control, seeking to gain your security in life by bringing order to some small corner of the universe. You might make an idol out of peace and quiet or out of a tidy home or even out of something like a coin collection. But there is one thing that a clean house 
and shiny coins cannot do. They cannot answer prayer. You may treat all of those things and many others besides like gods. You may bow down before them. You may give them your money and your time and your loyalty and your affection. They may even cause you to waver between two opinions, but they are not God because they cannot answer prayer. And that means that those gods will disappoint you when you need them most. When you are lonely, they will not hear you. When you are sick, they will not heal you. When you are dying, they will not save you. And worst of all, when you repent, they will not forgive you. What the people of Israel were really praying for on Mount Carmel was atonement for their sins. That was the reason they took bulls up on the mountain and sacrificed them. They were seeking forgiveness for their sins. It was not just any old prayer that they wanted answered. It was prayer for forgiveness, prayer for atonement, prayer for salvation, prayer for the acceptance of a sacrifice for their sins. False gods cannot answer such prayers. They cannot accept atonement for your sin. They cannot forgive your sins. But the true God can answer prayer. The true God can accept atonement for sin. The true God can forgive your sins. He is the God who speaks and is not silent. There is no God but he. And the ultimate proof that God is the God who answers prayer came when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. You may remember that when Jesus was crucified, he called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Now imagine for a moment what would have happened if Jesus had offered that prayer for the reception of his soul to Baal or to any other false god. Silence. No one would have responded. No one would have answered. No one would have paid attention. No other god could have heard that prayer or answered it by accepting the sacrifice that Jesus made for our sins. No other god could have raised him up from the dead for our salvation. But Jesus prayed to the God who is God. He prayed to the living God, the God of Israel, the Lord God of Elijah. And that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, heard that prayer. And he was not silent, but he answered that prayer and he raised Jesus up from the dead for our salvation. There is only one God. There is no God but God, and he is the God who answers prayer. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray to you because you are the God who hears our prayers. We give you thanks that you heard the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ and demonstrated in his resurrection that you are the God who answers prayer, the God who accepts atonement for our sins and forgives our sins. And we confess this morning that we too much waver between the attractions of this world and our complete loyalty to you. We ask that you would forgive that sin 
that sin of not being completely devoted to you, that you would forgive us for our sins, and that you would make us like Elijah, unwavering in our obedience. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every Last Word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word. <laughs>